Hello, hello, and welcome back to another episode. Um, I'm very happy that you're here, and I just want to remind you, um, make sure you are subscribing to this channel, make sure that you are sending this uh, to somebody you like, uh, especially this episode. Uh, today we are going to meet uh, Ben Bickman, who is a professor at the BYU, and he's a specialist, when, especially when it comes to... Um, um, metabolic disease and uh, to mitochondrial uh, deficiencies uh, and he's been specializing in the um, in the role of insulin uh, so in this episode if you don't know so much about insulin and don't know so much about how the body works you will learn a lot uh, if you are a medical professional, you will have something really, really good coming out of this when it comes to insulin, uh, things that most medical doctors simply miss. Um, and um, yeah, otherwise, a very nice chat with Ben. He's, uh, he's one of these um, intellectual uh uh, honesty guys uh, we have some common um, interests and uh, books it seems uh, which is fun uh, obviously we also like um, health and exercise so we have no problems discussing in this podcast uh, that's why it got pretty extended but uh, I hope you will enjoy this one and uh, uh, please take the time just uh, 10 seconds and uh, review the episode or the channel would make um, yeah make, 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 make me a lot alright, take care and have a listening ciao welcome Ben uh, we chatted just before I said welcome Ben uh, Ben Bickman uh, you're a uh, professor at the BYU in, in Utah Utah and um, uh, again, I'm very honored, flattered, and humbled to have uh, such a bright mind on the on the podcast. And um, I just thought, uh, let's uh, let uh, let's introduce you here maybe, uh, shortly. Uh, so, in in uh, what's your elevator pitch? Yeah, sure. Yeah, thanks, Richard. Thanks for reaching out. This is a fun opportunity. Uh, to speak with you, <clears throat> I am thrilled to be sharing more of, of this message on the dangers and, and awareness of, of insulin resistance and overall metabolic health anywhere in the world, Berlin included. It, that, that's a great, uh, great audience. And in fact, in fact, someday, Richard, you're going to have to find a way to get me to Berlin. I've been to Germany a couple times, but I never made it to Berlin. So let's, I got to get there sooner than later. Um, yeah, so my, my background is uh, looking at metabolic health, and it started actually in the context of exercise. My master's degree was exercise physiology, so studying how the body adapts to exercise. What are the cellular changes that the muscles go through, the heart, the lungs, uh, the, the brain, um, in order to respond to the exercise and to be better able to to do that same activity again in the future, this adaptation. But towards the very end of my master's degree, and in fact, what ended up being my master's thesis, I actually 
started shifting towards looking at the connection between obesity and inflammation. And right at the time, a, a few years prior to my master's degree, there was for me what, what was a mind-blowing um, realization in human physiology. <clears throat> and that was that our fat cells actually make and release pro-inflammatory hormones. That was, that was so shocking to me, the idea that our fat cells are our endocrine or our hormone-releasing tissues. And some of these hormones are, are proteins that will cause inflammation throughout the body. So that was, that was the beginning of me leaving exercise behind totally, um, professionally speaking, not personally. I'm still a big advocate of exercise. But I, I wanted to focus more and more on just fat tissue and obesity. And so during my PhD, I started to continue to, uh, I started to, I guess I progressed looking more at how, how obesity connects to diabetes. And at the time, I was just thinking, I was looking at it because inflammation was sort of a, a mediator of that. The, the thought, the prevailing thought was at the time, and it still is a prevailing thought, someone has too much fat mass the fat tissue is releasing pro-inflammatory proteins or hormones. And then these, this increased inflammation is then causing insulin resistance. That was the, the general idea that, that, that most people have. And I, and I certainly had at the time, and it's not wrong. There's just more nuance to it, but nevertheless, I, I followed that up with a postdoctoral fellowship, continuing to look at this relationship between fat and inflammation and insulin resistance. And then I was hired here at BYU about 10 years ago. In fact, 10 years ago, exactly, actually, as of, as of July 1. So it's, it's one decade now as a professor. And, and I've con continued to look at <clears throat> insulin and, and mitochondrial function. And more over the past few years, I've started looking into ketones. And that was a bit of an evolution for me as I continued to understand and learn more about insulin and the dangers of too much insulin, the, the best way to combat that was, is to just lower insulin. And I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but so we can come back and touch on any of these things that you think we should. But the, the more I appreciated how bad it was to have high insulin, the more I appreciated how important it was to keep insulin low. And when insulin is low, the body starts making ketones. Uh, and, and so <clears throat> that got me interested in ketogenic diets or, or ketogenic states where someone is controlling their insulin by, by controlling carbohydrates or by fasting. And then looking at these ketones as beneficial molecules themselves, because ketones are very beneficial. And we have studies coming out of my lab all the time. Uh, we, we have two studies that were just, one just submitted for review, looking at ketones on fat tissue. One we're just about to submit looking at ketones in the brain. Anyway, so that's my academic journey um, to, to where, where I am now. Um, yeah, I, I think I have, uh, when I prepared for this uh, podcast, I, I think um, I've been into so many rabbit holes already with mm -hmm. things I would like to talk about. But I think for the, for the audience, um, like most of us kind of have heard 
about um, insulin. Uh, we have heard about maybe ketones or ketogenic diet and and uh, so on. But maybe um, we should just define or, or help the audience to understand mm -hmm. what is what is insulin actually Perfect. and and um, what is uh the counterpart of insulin uh glucagon yeah uh, good good yeah so in fact let me yeah let's define insulin and then even insulin resistance and then and then glucagon because i mentioned insulin resistance and someone might not really appreciate what that is so insulin itself is a hormone that is released from uh, a, a tissue in our bodies called the pancreas an organ called the pancreas unless you're a type 1 diabetic someone with type 1 diabetes has lost those cells on the pancreas that make insulin but for everyone else we have insulin flowing through our bloodstream all the time one of the main actions of insulin is to keep blood glucose in control so if we eat a starchy sugary meal we eat some bread or bagels or something then our glucose levels will go up very high very quickly that if it stays too high for too long that is dangerous in fact even lethal you can die if that stays too high for too long and insulin is comes in and saves the day so our blood glucose levels come up and then the pancreas will sense this increase in glucose and it will release insulin and then insulin will essentially open doors to muscle and fat cells to push the glucose or to allow the glucose to come rushing into those cells. And so we, insulin helps the glucose go out of the blood and into the tissues, the muscle and the fat most, mostly, and then glucose comes down and then insulin will come back down. When insulin is bumped up too high too often, it can start to create a resistance the body, the cells of the body can start to become resistant to insulin. Now, there's a little more to it than this, but one simple version is as I'm describing. And so if someone's bumping up their glucose all the time because they follow conventional dietary advice, they're told to eat a high-carb diet and eat six times a day or six meals or snacks or whatever, their glucose is constantly coming up. And insulin, of course, is coming up to push the glucose back down. Unfortunately, this process can take two to four hours, depending on the person. So if a person wakes up and they have a bagel and orange juice for breakfast, that's going to really increase their glucose. Insulin will come up and it'll take about three hours to come back down to normal, depending on the person. It can be as little as 90 minutes and if someone, if they're very healthy and, and lean. But let's say the person's a little overweight, they're kind of sedentary. It takes three hours for insulin to come back down. That's right when they bump it back up with a mid-morning snack. And then they bump it back up for lunch and then for afternoon snack and so on. That, that living a life where insulin is constantly elevated creates resistance to insulin. Now, that is important because most people think of insulin and they just think of diabetes. And type 2 diabetes, which is the most common by far of type 1 versus type 2, is a state where insulin is always up. And, but it's important because before the person actually has type 2 diabetes, when they are just insulin resistant, it looks like this. They have high insulin, but it's enough insulin to keep the glucose, the blood glucose levels normal. So they're going to their doctor and they're gaining weight. They have high blood pressure. And, and maybe infertility or something like that, or fatty liver disease. And the doctor just looks at the glucose and the doctor will say, ah, well, you're not diabetic, 
so you're okay. Just, just here's some blood pressure medication or, you know, or something like that. And then I'll see you in a year. But if the doctor looked at the insulin level in that person with insulin resistance, which is called prediabetes, the insulin level may be sky high, but they just look at these problems as glucose problems. And so a lot of my professional goal is to try to say, hey, look at the insulin. And then if we look at the insulin, then the physician, the doctor would say, oh, glucose is normal. But we see that insulin is high. That's probably the cause of your high blood pressure and your infertility and your fatty liver disease. So rather than me give you a drug to, to treat your hypertension and your infertility, let's just lower your insulin. And then the patient would say, well, what's the best way to lower your insulin, my insulin? And the doctor says, well, just don't eat so many carbohydrates. And it works. It works extremely well. Insulin comes down, the insulin sensitivity starts to get better, and then so do all the problems that come from insulin resistance. Yeah, there's many things to, uh, to tap on there. Um, first of all, I'm thinking, um, have, you ever, have you looked at um, any differences in uh, insulin levels, uh, glucose levels, uh, when it comes to different types of carbohydrates, for example? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, you bet. So the, in general, the more natural the, the starch or the carbohydrate, the better it will be in general. So you can think of something as just sort of different uh, uh, steps, steps away from its natural state. So if we have something that we literally are just eating it in the way it came, and then we change it one level, we change it another level, we change it another level. So for example, if someone eats a potato, uh, that actually might not be that bad. If it's just a baked potato, they haven't done anything else, they just baked the potato, uh, you could say that maybe that's one step changed as opposed to something like a, a bagel where that is, you, you've taken the wheat, you have now milled it or ground it up, and now you have baked it or, you know, or something or you know, whatever. You have one or two more steps. In general, the more steps from natural the higher the starch, the sugar content will be, and the higher the insulin response will be. But there are some exceptions. Nowadays, we've gotten so clever at making fruits and vegetables as sugary as possible. So something like a banana, a banana is a very, or a pineapple, those are very sugary fruits. And even an apple nowadays, once upon a time, you know, 60 years ago, Apples were small, little, sour things. Now we've turned them into big sugar bombs. And so there is some kind of, my, my general view of how many steps removed doesn't always work, but my, my general rule is <clears throat> fruits and vegetables are, are going to be okay. Um, and some are going to be better than others, but if we don't want to worry too much about defining them, we could just say fruits and vegetables are okay, but never blend them into juices. You just eat the fruit or the vegetable. And then grains are typically going to be worse. Not all of them. You know, buckwheat is very different from wheat, which is different from rice. So there are differences there. But in general, if someone wants to um, be smarter about their, their starches, then my recommendation is focus on fruits and vegetables and, and generally just avoid the tropical fruits, pineapples, mangoes, bananas, because they're kind of the worst and anything else is going to be okay. Yeah. Um, 
It's it's interesting just uh, when you look at um, these different compounds, and as you said, like when you when you uh, do shakes and stuff like that out of uh, fruits and stuff, and you can release all the the fructose mm-hmm. uh, out of the fruits, and uh, all the fiber kind of gets destroyed. Yes, yes, uh, and. Uh, I know uh, Robert Lustig is one of the big uh, uh, proponents of like uh, speaking of like if you eat the fruit, eat like eat the fruit, don't drink the fruit. Yeah. Uh, because the fiber kind of protects protects your uh, uh, yeah uh, protects you from taking up that fructose. You just it just goes through the body instead. That's right. And and when you eat the fruit, the fiber also helps you stop eating sooner. You know, Richard, if you and I wanted to eat apples and have an apple eating contest, we would eat four apples and we would just, we would be sick of them. We would not want another apple. We would be so sick of the apples. But if we were drinking apple juice, we could drink the fructose from 20 apples easily, easily, and still want more uh, because we just, we, we stripped out all the fiber which is part of what's going into our guts and it's partly what's saying I'm full, I'm done. But when it's just pure fructose and water, which is what we get when we're, you know, either juicing or even when we're, when we're um, blending, uh, like you said, we destroy the fiber. It's not going to have the same effect. So yes, eat the fruit. Don't drink it. <laughs> yeah. And um, just because you, because you said that, uh, what makes a lot of sense is, um, because uh, we we done some uh, glucose testing here uh, for you know our nutrition uh, clients, and when we done like nutrition challenges and so on, we we just out of curiosity we wanted to check their uh, their like fasting bl- uh, blood glucose, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I I saw some people uh, with exactly the syndrome of high blood pressure however the the fasting blu- uh, glu- uh, glucose level was almost too low mm-hmm. right so it was uh, like for example like 0.7 and so on maybe not like a super dramatic thing for some people that are fasted uh, to see that like it it's in that kind of range of uh, acceptable area for some people um, so it doesn't stick out that much. So uh, I can see what you're talking about when the doctor looks at the glucose and it's like, okay, well, it's pretty low. So mm-hmm. uh, you don't have diabetes. Yeah. How- however, um, looking at like the, uh, if you combine those two, the, the hypertension combined with the bl- low blood sugar, it might be like, okay, we need to have some kind of uh, red light, alarm light singling here like okay let's check the insulin there um and uh, i haven't checked that for us to if we could have some kind of insulin testing uh, i don't even know how it's not the- easy no that's no. and that's one of the problems um, th- uh, in this whole situation I, I am a big advocate of measuring insulin and looking at the insulin asking what the insulin levels are but it's not easy to measure. In contrast, you know, blood glucose levels, you can do that just with a little finger prick and a little glucose meter. Boom. You have, you know what your blood glucose levels are. Because glucose, and same with ketones, those are nutrients. 
And it's easier for a nutrient, you just oxidize the nutrient on that teeny little strip that gets your little teeny blood sample. <clears throat> but when you're talking about a hormone, it doesn't work the same way. You immediately, it's immediately more complicated. And for, and that means you have to take an actual blood sample, you know, take blood from the arm, send it to the lab, and then the doctor can tell you your insulin levels later. But sometimes that's a test that some doctors won't do or some labs won't do in the U.S. Some people will worry that their insurance won't pay for it. Um, and, and in other countries where it's more socialized medicine, they, they in, in Canada, for example, they won't do it. You, you, it's just, it's not something that's going to be covered by the, the socialized medicine. And, and so it's, it's difficult. There's a hurdle there. And, and so usually the person, the patient has to be so determined that they're willing to pay for it themselves. And it's not that expensive, um, but it is money that they have to pay. Yeah. Um, and um, so if we look at insulin, they, we have um, different things uh, that are affecting your insulin levels. We talked about carbs as one mm -hmm. factor, but we also have different lifestyle factors to that. Um, maybe you can abbreviate a bit yeah. on that. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent point. Yeah, so diet is the big one when it comes to controlling insulin. But there are other things that are not diet dependent, most especially two in particular. Well, yeah, two. Uh, one, let's say stress is one. And stress can encompass a lot. The, the biggest part of stress-induced insulin resistance is going to be poor sleep habits. If someone doesn't sleep well, even one night of a very disordered, disrupted, bad sleep, the next day the person will be insulin resistant. And this has been measured. Now, that doesn't mean they're on their way to type 2 diabetes. No, because give the person one good night of sleep the next night and it's, it's, they're back to normal and it's fine. But you could see that as a person continues to have bad sleep every night for a long time, that is going to add up to a very meaningful insulin resistance. And that's, most that's why you shouldn't have, have kids. <laughs> oh, believe me, my <laughs> my sleep is is. I remember, you know, just twelve years ago, I slept mostly through the night in general, um, but uh, not not anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um. So so I love my little children desperately, but oh boy, they've ruined me. Um. But but even if someone doesn't have kids, as you know. We are a world that is obsessed with constant entertainment. We always have our phones with us. Um, we have such bad sleep hygiene where we, we're looking at our phone too late. We're eating too late into the night. And that is one of, I know for me, that is the single most important variable is that I can't go to bed with a full stomach. I have to have eaten my dinner almost no later than six o'clock and stop. And even when I eat my dinner, I cannot eat till I'm stuffed, till I'm really full. I have to just try to keep my dinner at a very modest portion. If I overeat, then I know I, I wear a, a ring to track my sleep at night. And it has been so illuminating to see that if I eat too late into the night, my heart rate stays elevated for far too long into the night. And my body temperature is too high as well as my body is just working on digestion and I can't, I just can't settle down and sleep. So nevertheless, all this stress, stress is a big one causing insulin resistance that would have, that might not have anything to do with diet. And the second one is inflammation. 
And that is an interesting aspect because it touches on a lot of other lifestyle variables or, or conditions. If someone has an underlying autoimmune disease, for example, like they have rheumatoid arthritis or they have psoriasis, a skin disease, whatever, or lupus, if them, someone has an autoimmune disease, they, that inflammation in the body, that activation of the immune system can cause insulin resistance. Now, usually um, that cycles, you know, someone who has an autoimmune disease, the disease will be bad and then it gets good and then it gets bad and then it gets good. The insulin resistance will follow the cycles of the autoimmune disease as well. Now, but even if someone has an illness, if they have an infection, like a COVID-19 infection, there is some speculation that when some people get a bad COVID-19 infection, it actually starts to cause diabetes. And then that's just because they become, start to become insulin resistant and the glucose levels climb. And so it starts to check the boxes of diabetes. So those are the kind of the three main pillars. It's nutrition, um, it basically too much carbs. Um, although nowadays it's carbs and fat together, and that's a very bad combination. But it's too much carbs, it's too much stress, or too much inflammation. Yeah, um, and that also uh, highlights so many things that we see on a practical level when we, when we talk to people is um, their sleep is, yeah. uh, is often um, not, not great. And uh, so something that we usually recommend or I, I ask people like, how, how is your sleep? And they say, well, I'm a bad sleeper. I, I usually get to bed very late. And I, I can't train in the morning because I'm a bit sleepy in the morning and blah, blah, blah. So I usually tell these people to actually start training in the morning. Uh, so we get the cortisol levels up in the morning mm -hmm. instead. Mm -hmm. And then hopefully they're, they're so tired in the evening that they might fall asleep a bit earlier and uh, i think that's i totally agree with that uh, it, it to, to help start fostering good sleep habits wake up and and actually wake up you know turn on the lights get active start moving um don't just sort of shuffle through the home with all the lights off and the blinds closed no when you're waking up make sure that light is hitting your eyes start moving around and it starts the clock basically it starts your the clock this this rhythm in your body saying i'm awake and then when it does come time for evening the sun is setting lights are getting dim hopefully you're you know the person is shifting to eliminate blue lights on their phone or their screens or something just to help that light start reducing to the eyes and then it starts to tell the brain i'm getting ready for sleep and then they can sleep better i think it's a brilliant idea it's a good way to do it yeah and and also uh, like to tap into this kind of the, the autoimmune uh, problems that uh, follow along. Uh, my sense is that many of us have some kind of sensitivities to, mm -hmm. it can be different things, like some, somebody has sensitivities to gluten, yep. someone has, you know, to some, some different plastics um and uh, you know to fruits whatever mm -hmm. vegetables um and uh, they have these kind of sensitivities and they're kind of not so bad if everything else mm -hmm. like their sleep is good their exercise yeah. is good and everything however when we then compile these things with uh just high insulin right so i'm thinking somebody who has like autoimmune system 
uh, autoimmune um, problems uh, or disease, he might or she might really want to reduce all kind of excess insulin in the body because this person might be, you know, having this high insulin, even though if we compare this person to second person, they might eat the same amount of carbs, mm -hmm. for example, but this guy who has more insulin resistance already because of his autoimmune disorder, he might, um, you know, just not tolerate as much carbs yeah. as this. Yeah. Yeah, I totally, I absolutely agree. We need to look at a person with the, with this sort of constellation of variables. Their their underlying metabolic health, from a genetic standpoint, some people genetically just are more insulin sensitive than than other people. They will uh, people will have more of a sensitivity to certain foods around them. What's interesting about autoimmune diseases, and this is a bit of a tangent, so I won't go too far, but there's always an environmental trigger. It's a combination of someone having a genetic predisposition, and then they're exposed to something in their environment that turns it on, that makes this become a problem. And I think what you said is pretty accurate, that many people will have, not that it will necessarily cause an autoimmune disease, but many people will have some sensitivity to something. It, it just, and whether it's, Maybe, you know, like some of the things you mentioned, it's a, it's a grain sensitivity or it's a dairy sensitivity, whatever it may be, the, it might be subtle enough to some people where maybe they eat this stuff and they find that they're, they get kind of rashy skin or they eat it and they get congested in their nose or a, a sore throat or something. What's so interesting about all of that is that it's never meat. Someone, it, it is, it is to, to my, as far as I know, uh, and I'm, I'm pretty confident in stating this, no one ever has a sensitivity to meat. This is such an ancestrally vital food as a species that it doesn't happen. And that, I think, is part of the benefit when certain people go to a pure meat-based diet. And I'm not advocating that necessarily. I'm not. But I have seen it too many times to ignore where someone will have a debilitating disorder. They have a chronic uh, inflammatory bowel disease, or they have a chronic inflammatory skin disorder, or you know whatever it may be, and it is totally gone. And I don't think it's because, I mean, maybe it's two things. One, meat or beef especially is very nutritious. It is a very nutritious food. But second, they have just ended up eliminating these foods that they didn't know they had a sensitivity to just because they went to the most fundamental nutritious food and built their entire nutrition on that. And the, the health, again, I've seen it too many times to ignore. It is incredible what that shift can do. So all to your point um, that there are sensitivities to foods and sometimes people may not know even that they have a sensitivity to a food. They might just think, I just got unlucky genetically. I have a chronic inflammatory disease. It's, there's nothing to do about it. Actually, there is. It's probably triggered from a food you're eating. Yeah, we, I mean, this is called uh, um, epigenics, right? So where, um, and also uh, something I talk about 
to people is like, yeah, you might have these uh, genetics, like your dad was this, your mother was that, and your granddad and whatever. And uh, that's true that these kind of this kind of diet or this kind of um, um, sources might uh, it, i mean it can be plastic it can be something environmental that uh, just triggers this gene to kind of go on and for some people it might just be that this gene is on so you you have this autoimmune uh disease and um the only thing you can do is to just mitigate all the other stresses mm -hmm. so the body has and this is kind of how i see it like you have you have this amount of, um, like this amount of, uh, um, I would say, um, defense in your body. Like, mm -hmm. and uh, if you have like a, some kind of disease that is uh, very hard for your body, you will need all your troops to kind yeah. of mitigate uh, and fight that disease. And then you have, but if you start to add new fronts, like uh, we think of it like a war, and you start to add the, the Eastern Front and the Western Front to that, your troops has to divide. Yep. And uh, the, one, if, yeah, just one too many attacks on yeah, the body. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know if that analogy like really holds, but uh, that's kind of how, how I've been trying to look at it. And especially when you look at these like real uh, high restriction diets, um, we have uh, Dr. Sean Baker also on the show. And uh, we talked about that, like the, this is a very restrictive diet when you only eat meat, but it definitely, if you have any kind of problems, this will be at least a very good way to kind of see if it's in, in the food or you're going to have um, a big more chance to kind of get, um, yeah, get, 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 get some kind of space and breathe and try to fight that kind of uh, disease or if you have you know just having a inflammation from we say a cut or whatever it might be yeah um, yeah i agree and um um one of my, my coaches he um mark here he he wanted to ask you um is there well well maybe we should go and define this first but he, he would like to know a bit about like keto and insulin resistance if and uh, if there are people that are in the ketogenic state that also get insulin resistant. Oh, yeah, I'm so but, glad you're asking that question. But um, before we go down that path, maybe we just try to define also, because, um, again, a lot of people heard about ketogenic and ketogenic mm -hmm. diets and ketones. But yeah, maybe you can help us to understand what ketones are and also... Yeah kind of what the ketones does to our different, um, uh, as you call, brown and white fats. Yeah, okay, yeah. So, yeah, let's start. Um, yeah, ketones, the simplest way of, of defining a ketone is that it is a little piece of fat. In fact, literally, it is. If you look at the fat molecule, it's a, it's a long string of carbons. And what we've done is just pull off a little piece and that, that is the ketone, just pull off two little carbons, two little carbons, two little carbons, and that's the kind of backbone of the ketone. Now, importantly, to back up a, a little bit, ketones are only made when the body is burning a high amount of fat. And, and that can only happen when insulin is low. 
insulin is this master metabolic regulator and the human metabolism is like a hybrid engine and there's two main fuel sources that are that are fueling the body at any moment in varying levels and that is glucose and fat and insulin dictates which energy is being used if insulin is high then the body's in glucose burning mode if insulin is low the body is in fat burning mode if insulin is low for a long enough time, and this is maybe around 20 hours, 16 to 20 hours in most people, then the body has been burning so much fat for so long that now it starts pushing some of that fat into making, into turning it into ketones. And that serves a lot of purposes, but one of the primary purposes is to feed the brain. Because if we've stopped eating glucose, then the body is thinking, okay, I need to keep the brain fed, and because I'm, I'm getting low on glucose, I have this gap of energy, then ketones start to fill that gap. So that's the main, probably the main purpose for making ketones. It's a way to feed the brain. Now, so that, that's, that's how we make ketones. And that's why a, if someone is following a low carbohydrate diet or they're intermittent fasting, their insulin has been low enough for a long enough time that they're making a lot of ketones and now they've entered into a state called ketosis. Ketosis is simply when blood ketones are higher than, than the typical person. And the typical person, again, as we talked about earlier, because their insulin is high all day long, they usually will have almost no detectable ketones. In fact, it will be below the level of detection on conventional you know, blood prick, blood finger um, uh, ketone measurements measuring a drop of blood from the finger. And that actually has problems because it can, if someone has a brain that needs more energy um, than the glucose can give, and that can happen in migraine headaches and epilepsy, then, then if they don't have any ketones then the brain just goes hungry and that causes some of the brain problems. So you only make ketones when insulin is low. Ketones themselves are little pieces of, of fat. Now, a paper that we have in review for publication right now um, shows that ketones um, can provide a bit of a metabolic advantage. <clears throat> there have been other scientists that have shown that when insulin is low compared to when insulin is high, metabolic rate is almost 300 calories, kilocalories more per day. That is, that is a lot. You know, that, that's, that's like an hour-long workout in some people. And to think about that, that's a metabolic advantage because to get that 300-calorie boost, that increased metabolic rate in the body, we don't have to have the person exercise. We just keep their insulin low. Our paper finds that when ketones are elevated, it's actually shifting metabolism in fat cells. So mostly. Uh, the fat that someone has on their bodies is mostly a type of fat called subcutaneous fat. And that's the fat that's right beneath the skin, the fat that we can pinch and jiggle on our belly and our legs and our arms. That, that subcutaneous fat is called white fat, and it really is just storage fat. It's just to pull in energy and store it for, for to be used later, hopefully, although most people never use their energy uh, because they're always eating. Uh, we have some spots on our body that is called brown fat, and that's mostly just up here on the upper chest and around the, the, the shoulders. That brown fat 
is in fact brown in color and it has a very high metabolic rate. It has lots of mitochondria and these mitochondria are eating lots of glucose and fat just to make more heat. So it's very thermogenic, we say. Now, what's interesting about ketones is that ketones actually start converting a little bit. It starts converting some of that white subcutaneous fat that we can pinch and jiggle. It starts making it act more like brown fat. And thus, it's increasing the metabolic rate. And so what we found in humans is that when humans were in ketosis, and we would actually, we were pulling fat biopsies from fat right beside their belly button. So belly fat, we were just doing a little, a little cut and going in and pulling out a little piece of fat. And we found that the metabolic rate in the fat tissue went up from two to three times higher than the normal person when they were not in ketosis. So that's a very real um, metabolic benefit of, of, of having higher ketones. <clears throat> now, in this state, of prolonged ketosis where a person is eating very little carbohydrate because that has to happen whether it's because they're fasting or whether it's because it's a low carb diet what those have in common is that they're not eating carbohydrates and so ketones can get very very high and the body has shifted really to a fat burning state very little glucose burning very high fat burning and, and of course that makes sense because the person is eating fat or they're burning their own stored body fat, which is why it's there. So we, may, we need to burn it and use it. Um, but if, and because they're not eating glucose, they're not burning much glucose. Glucose burning is very, very low. Now, however, but importantly, Richard, and this is so important, insulin is low. And that right there is very, very important because sometimes people want to say this state of very high fat burning and very little sugar burning, they say that's physiological insulin resistance. No, that is not true. That is false because insulin resistance can only happen when insulin is high. And importantly, so Richard, people will say that's insulin resistance because if they're high fat burning, very low sugar burning. If they immediately dump lots of sugar into the body, like they eat a bagel or they drink juice or something, then that glucose will go up and it will take longer than normal to come back down. It will take longer than normal. But that does not mean they're insulin resistant because if I gave that person an injection of insulin, it would work very, very well their glucose levels would go even lower than before and it'd be very dangerous. They're very insulin sensitive. It's just they've adapted. Their, their metabolism has adapted to fat burning. And now when we force it to go right back to sugar burning very, very quickly, it, it takes a little time for the body to adjust. And so if someone has been adhering to a ketogenic diet and they have to go to the doctor and do an oral glucose tolerance test, they should know they will fail the test probably if they just go straight in. They need to get the body back to burning carbohydrates about two, three days before, start eating more carbohydrates just to help the body start going back and forth to be more flexible again. And, and then they will be just fine. But that state of, of high fat burning, low glucose burning, <clears throat> that is called a glucose intolerance or I've heard people say that's adaptive glucose sparing. The body's using so little glucose because it doesn't have a lot, and so it doesn't want to use a lot. And so even when you load it in, the body is still thinking, 
I should be very careful and not use too much it, because it's not, it just takes some time for the body to go back to sugar burning mode when it's been in fat burning mode for so long. So that is not the same as insulin resistance. Whether insulin resistance is pathological, like a person who's overweight and high blood pressure, or whether it is physiological, like pregnancy and puberty, those are the two times of physiological insulin resistance where the body's insulin resistant, but it is insulin resistant for a purpose to help growth or to help a baby grow. Uh, what they have in common is that insulin levels are high. So always, always, a person is only insulin resistant if insulin is high and then it's not working particularly well in, in, in normal places. That's the difference between pathological and physiological. But what they have in common is that insulin is high. On a low carb or ketogenic diet or fasting, insulin is low. That is not insulin resistance. It is just a glucose intolerance. They just need to kind of warm that system back up to get back into sugar burning mode. Yeah. Um, oh man, I, I have so many things I, I go through my head uh, when we talk about this. But uh, I'm thinking, um, if you eat, for example, um, high amounts of fat, um, what I've also understood is this will also keep your insulin uh, levels elevated uh, for a longer period, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, have you uh, have you any knowledge about that? Yeah. So so you're asking with dietary fat that that will keep insulin high? Yeah. Exactly. No. No, it won't. There is very very little evidence to support that, but there is some. So in general. If someone eats, it, it's sort of like a threshold. If someone eats maybe 600 calories, five, 600 calories of fat, then insulin will be very, very, very low and it'll come up a little bit about an hour or two and come back down. But in some studies, that little bit can be called statistically significant. You know, it will get a significant p value, but it's still very, very modest. If someone eats less than that, you know, two or 300 calories of fat, Nothing. There's no significant difference. Now, some of this could be the amount of fat. It could be the type of fat, you know, possibly milk fat because it has so much different types of fats. Maybe that has a bigger effect than just coconut oil, which is a much narrower range of fats, um, or, or even olive oil, which is even narrower than coconut oil. Um, so uh, there may be some nuance there, but in general, Dietary fat is not going to increase insulin, perhaps unless it gets to a much higher level, like five or 600 calories. But even then, it's still very, very small. Yeah, um, that, that's very interesting. And uh, I know, I mean, I don't, I don't think this is so much for our audience, but uh, I know for some of the, the guys that are going, uh, going for a ketogenic diet, they're, they're um, some of them are scared about eating protein and, and mm. so on. And uh, we, um, I mean, usually what I say and look at is like, what we look at, first of all, is like, do you, do you eat enough protein? And because mm -hmm. and, that is kind of the first thing we want to get into the body in, in enough states. And also looking at the amount of protein, um, that is needed also over time. So over, or sorry, uh, over your yeah. age. Yeah, over lifetime. 
over a lifetime is going to change and uh i guess also for all the other variables will start to change like i i, I assume the your, your sensitive insulin sensitivity and everything will start to change as you get older um yeah and uh just because of dna degeneration and all, all the well, and muscle loss yeah, yeah and bad bad sleep typically as we age we stop sleeping quite as well as when we were younger yeah so i agree completely uh protein should not be vilified it should not be looked at as an enemy on a ketogenic diet i don't think that is warranted it's not fair it's not healthy my um my thoughts on protein is that that god made fat and protein come together the best protein sources have fat with them you know whether it is dairy or whether it is meat or eggs fat and protein come together all the time that's how we should eat them and now someone if someone has to stay in ketosis because of a medical condition like let's say someone has an epilepsy disorder and and if they go out of ketosis they will start to get seizures that and that can happen in that person i would say okay maybe be a little more careful with protein um because protein can have an insulin effect that is absolutely true it can for the average person i say who cares if the protein effect from the insulin effect from protein it's going to be small it and it's okay if it lowers your ketones for a little bit it's okay that's just insulin telling the protein where to go and, and basically to build up and help the body with muscle so let it happen it's okay in, in the average person but importantly if someone's adhering to a low carbohydrate diet, there are two important things. One, the insulin effect of the protein will be less than it would be if someone's adhering to a high carbohydrate diet. So if someone's eating glucose and protein, which in nature doesn't come together, that's very uncommon. It's basically just milk. You know, dairy is pure milk is high in all three, you know, sugar, protein and fat. And that's perfect because we give it to a little baby and that's a wonderful cocktail to help baby grow as quickly as possible. That's really the only instance of, of carbohydrate and protein coming together in high amounts. But nevertheless, if someone's eating protein and carbohydrate together, that will have a bigger insulin effect. If it's protein and fat, or just protein alone, and it's low carb, the person's not eating carbohydrates, it will have a smaller um, insulin effect. And then earlier, at the very beginning of our conversation, you mentioned a protein called glucagon, a hormone called glucagon. What's important in a low carbohydrate diet, when someone eats, pro uh, eats protein, insulin will go up, but the glucagon comes up with it. And glucagon is kind of insulin's opposite. Whereas insulin wants to inhibit ketone production, glucagon activates ketones. Where insulin wants to tell a fat cell to store energy and get big, glucagon wants to tell the fat cell to share the fat and get small, so to release fat. And, and so there's these contrasting effects of these two hormones. So again, on a low-carb diet, when someone eats protein, they both go up. So glucagon can offset some of the negative of the insulin. On a high carbohydrate diet, it goes opposite. Then insulin goes up and glucagon goes down, putting the body into energy storage rather than energy use, because glucagon wants the body to use energy, not store it.
Yeah. Uh, and would you say when you when you eat a lot of uh, well, let's say you are on a ketogenic diet or you are very low carb, you get uh, insulin uh, sensitive uh, instead. And um, and would you say this this is also might be a problem for for people to that they they simply uh, come out of the kind of low carb and then they kind of transcend to a normal life uh, or standard diet again and then they just yeah. start growing. Yep. Yep, yep, they will gain it all back. Uh, that's yeah. that's one of the sad things that there's too few people realize that they've gained weight, they've become unhealthy, they adopt a ketogenic diet and they get healthy and they lose weight. The myth is thinking, okay, now I can go back to eating how I was before and stay that same healthy, lean weight. No. If they go back to those same habits, they go back to the same body. And so unfortunately, a person who makes lifestyle changes to get healthier, they have to maintain those lifestyle changes to keep that health. Now, what someone might be able to do is they lose 100 pounds and they get off medications and diabetes gets better. What they can start to do is, is sort of start to put carbs back in a little bit at a time and just see, okay, I'm going to, I've been eating 50 grams of carbohydrates. Now for a week or two weeks, I'm going to go up to 75 grams and just see, can I, can I stay where I am? And if they notice, oh, I'm starting to gain weight, then they know they have to go back down if they want to stay where they were. Or if they find that they can go back up in carbs and the body is still healthy and they feel fine, then okay, that's a, that can be a new normal. And they can even try pushing it up uh, again in two more weeks and just to start experimenting what happens as they start to go a little bit back to where they were but the great myth is that someone makes a change they get better and they think they can go back to the old habits and stay better no if they go back to old habits the bad health will come back too yeah um and uh, so if we go go then to, to the question that mark had about the um being in a in a ketogenic state and uh is there a risk of getting insulin resistance by actually eating the wrong fats mm, uh, only if it is maybe maybe and only if it would be like soybean oil or fake fats if it is a natural fat or what i like to say in ancestral fats so fats that we as humans have been eating for thousands or millions of years animal fats are good any animal fat and then fruit fats are good and the fruit fats are coconuts olives avocados basically where the fat is coming from the flesh of the fruit not from the seed if it's seed fat like soybean oil is the most common or canola oil or corn oil those are not good those are very, in, very refined and they're high in a type of fat called linoleic acid, which in low levels is everywhere. It's in every animal fat, for example, so you can't avoid it. And you don't need to, you need it. And so it's fine. Only get it when it comes from animal sources because it's so low. Nowadays, unfortunately, in the US, and I suspect Germany is very, very close to this, soybean oil is the number one source of fat in the diet 
because almost every processed food, if someone's eating food from a package, that fat is almost always going to be soybean oil. Here in the U.S., and again, I bet Germany's close, if you go to a, a supermarket, a grocery store, and you try to find salad dressing without soybean oil, impossible. Soybean oil is in all of them. You try to, my, my one, one of my daughters loves ketchup. Even ketchup has soybean oil, mayonnaise, soybean oil. It is everywhere. It is the number one consumed fat in the, in the Western diet. Yeah, I think uh, in Germany, what we mostly see is uh, sunflower oil. Uh, mm -hmm. Yep, same. Loads of it. And uh, especially, uh, this is the funny caveat, is that if you go to any supermarket here in Germany and you want to buy uh, any meat product, uh, that is, um, I would say, uh, uh, it's processed in some way. Um, and if it's cheap, then it's always going to be in sunflower oil and uh, in <sighs> and in. Um, uh, I'm blanking on the on the on the English word for uh, uh, cups or wraps oil. I don't know what this in in, in, oh, in English. Oh, rapeseed. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Those those two they combine in everything. So if you buy tuna, for example, the sheep tuna in oil is always with the sunflower oil or. Uh, yeah, that's too bad. <clears throat> and the, the problem with, with putting those oils in with meat is that you're going to cook the meat. And then that, those are oils you do not want to heat up because those are very, those are polyunsaturated fats and those do not heat well. They become very what, like radical or, or, or uh, lipid peroxides, very damaging molecules that actually can make the body sick in any number of ways, including insulin resistance. Uh, so th that, that's doubly unfortunate because that you have to get the meat with those fats. That's bad. And when you cook the meat, which you always will do, you heat it up and those oils are not very stable. They get they heat and they become radical and they're very unhealthy as opposed to something like coconut oil, which is the most stable. That's one of the great misfortunes with people look at like coconut oil as such a demon. If you are going to heat up the oil to a high temperature, coconut oil is number one. It's the best. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think also olive oils have different qualities too, but uh, I usually also say uh, I, I, you never want to have oils uh, uh, exhausting fumes. That's like a bad, mm -hmm. bad idea. Um, but uh, looking at um, especially these, uh, as you said, and uh, then we look in, into people cooking, you said meat and these oils, but looking at doing refined carbs and these oils too. Oh, uh, double we, whammy. Yes, yeah. very bad. Or uh, potato chips. Uh, put, uh, yep, and, yep. Uh, potato stuff like chips, that. French, French fries. Yeah, um, yeah when, you're, when you're frying something, a carbohydrate in those oils, that's, that's the worst. That's like a perfect storm. And, and, and usually they will add sugar of some kind too. So now you have the, the, the heated refined oil, you have the refined carbohydrate and you have sugar. That's the worst thing in the world. And this is exactly what most people feed their kids. Oh uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, that's what treats are because they're delicious. Yeah. It's delicious. It, yeah. it like satisfies every part of your brain. If you eat something with those three things, something that is fried, a carbohydrate that is fried and has sugar, oh, it's, it's amazing. It's so yummy. Like a donut. A donut, it's so delicious, but it is the worst thing. Yeah, and 
the the unfortunate uh, thing about that is that kids are um i mean kids are just monsters in in uh bouncing back from from anything so mm -hmm. for example my kid has has an injury or she scrapes her knee or anything takes her like two days and then it's gone oh, yeah. Was, uh, yeah so the the body is healing so fast in kids so uh, that's why it is even more disturbing when you see kids being obese oh I know. because that tells you how much you have to actually be or almost yeah, abusing abusing yeah. that kid so yeah and it's it's very sad i see an overweight child and i feel bad for the child because it's i hate i don't often say this kind of thing but i will hear in my mind it is not the child's fault a little kid doesn't appreciate nutrition and that they should be eating less sugar if if mom and dad are buying those foods and bringing them into the house and letting the child eat them that's mom and dad's fault because mom and dad know mom and dad know better mom and dad should be treating that child better i don't blame the child a kid is going to eat junk food it's just they don't know uh, what what is going to be the healthier food or the unhealthy food it's if mom the, and dad yeah it's the easy way out as i say yeah yeah. And um, what something that life has told me is that the easy way out is usually not the oh, right. long-term best way. So yeah, you have to, that's like that's like you have to put that on a poster in the CrossFit gym. <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, no one comes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so um, I wanted to also ask you a bit about um, insulin and training because. Uh, mm -hmm. Um, I know that, uh, like insulin, when you're in a low carb state, your insulin is low. And, yep. um, if I'm correct, uh, when your insulin is low, your ATP, as we talked about, um, or your metabolic rate is higher. Uh, and how, how, or what is your kind of thoughts about training and the low insulin levels um because uh, as you said like the mitochondria is really uh, upping up its its work a bit when when the insulin levels are low yeah yeah but when when they're high the mitochondria is actually less active so how how does that kind of relate to to fitness because most people within fitness classical fitness at least <clears throat> they they're like, yeah, you have to have carbs. You have to have carbs. Yeah, yeah. And and um, uh, for muscle growth and and so on. And um, I, I saw you you start talk to uh, Stan Effertrain, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Am I correct? Yeah. So yep. uh, um, I know he 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 is a, he has a, this vertical diet, mm -hmm. um, but uh, I'm not super. Uh, I don't know too much about it, but I know he is also a bit of a pouring in some some uh some carbs with protein but mm -hmm. never together with fat so oh yeah yeah so uh yeah i won't i don't know stan's diet too well either but i will say it's working for stan <laughs> <laughs> you know so i don't i don't in any way intend to criticize um his his system because the results speak for themselves but i will also say 
that when you're training at a very, very high level, you can get away with a lot of things <clears throat> that I don't think should be applied to the average person who's just sort of casually exercising for 30 minutes a day. That person is going to have a very different nutritional need than the person who's hard, intense weightlifting for one hour or two hours, you know, whatever, going failure on every set. That is such a different um, situation. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> the evidence that carbohydrates and protein together is better is, is very weak. For example, there's one very specific study. They took men and they had them exercise and they were in two groups. One group just got a load of protein. One group got a load of protein with pure carbohydrate, dextrose. Yeah. They looked at the, the and, and the main outcome, well, they would pull a, a muscle biopsy and look at the rate at which the muscle was making new protein. And that's called muscle protein synthesis. It, it is, it is you, I consider it the best single indicator of muscle growth. So in the group of men that exercised and got protein alone, there was a significant increase in muscle protein synthesis. In the group of men that got protein and carbohydrate, it was exactly the same. It did not go any higher. It was exact same. So the protein and the carbohydrate did not get any more muscle benefit. Even though the insulin effect would be higher, it's because it's not just a matter of insulin. It isn't. In fact, I've heard some people say, and I like this description, insulin doesn't build muscle, it just protects muscle. And so, and who knows what that level needs to be. So the person who's low carb and eats protein, they get a little insulin bump. That is obviously enough to protect the muscle as opposed to going two times higher in insulin. That's just extra. We didn't need that. The muscle didn't need it. You went higher. Now you're just feeding fat cells. We didn't need to get that high. Yeah. Now, in contrast, Richard, and I think this touches on, on nature and human evolution and nutrition, where earlier I said fat and protein come together, and I believe that's for a reason. One reason is that fat and protein help protein work better. A different study looked at the same thing, but just flipped out the carbs for fat. The protein alone had a significant effect. The protein and fat, even higher. Mm -hmm. It was significantly higher than just the protein alone. So there's something about that fat, either improving amino acid um, absorption or, or uptake into the cell or, or something. I don't know the process, but I know the data said that when you have protein and fat together, and they did what I consider a, 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 divine, a divine ratio because they matched what you have in an egg. In an egg, which I think is a perfect food, by mass, not by calorie number, but by mass, the fat and the protein is one to one. Yeah. You know, like three grams, three grams, something like that. And, and there is something, that's what they did in this study. And, and so uh, to me, that creates um, a, a kind of a rule, a pillar for optimal nutrition uh, that, that it ends up being a calorie breakdown of about, you know, 60 uh, uh, you know, like kind of 65 to 35 percent, 65 percent ish fat, 30, 35 percent from protein. That's about what you get when it's a one to one by mass. And I think that's a very, very good uh, macronutrient breakdown. Yeah. Um, and I, I know. Um, so I, I know there was a, some study also. Uh, I don't know exactly when it came out, but it was uh, 
people uh, riding bikes and they changed their diet uh, was a, like a very poor st study uh, if you look in into it a bit more uh, more detail but it basically had these this group uh being um if i recall correctly they were doing low carb and then they cycled and then they were uh um uh, let's say and no it was to, uh, vice versa they were eating carbs and then they took away the carbs and uh tried to go uh kind of low carb and they tried to do this same test of uh, biking and it was i don't know it was like a two-hour ride or something like that uh yeah and, but they had no period no no adaptation no adaptation when yeah. we talked about this like metabolic flexibility to make your body able to actually adapt to that and at the same time also i think in that study like the the, the difference in those times between those uh, uh so i think the same person did it right so um between those times like the, there was not really a significant difference between the results however there was a tiny difference but i mean I, again like the other factors like how was your sleep uh did your yeah, wife yeah, yell at but, you but yesterday? Also, yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> and that, we both know that can happen. Um, this, what is so important, and I wouldn't want someone to misunderstand me. I am an advocate for a low carbohydrate diet in in people that are worried about their metabolic health. So someone who is who wants to stay lean or is trying to get lean, someone who's worried about their blood pressure or worried about their 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 headaches or their fertility or their fatty liver disease low carb diet will work every time. Yeah. If we're talking about an athlete, ah, uh, well then that's a different set of rules. And I would still say I still believe that you have someone like Sean Baker or Zach Bitter who who are very ends of a, on the spectrum where Sean Baker is a power athlete, Zach Bitter is an endurance athlete. And Zach Bitter is is an interesting case because he will live a low carbohydrate diet, but when he trains he will add carbohydrates into his training. And of course, Zach mm. is an extreme example because he will go run, you know, 150 kilometers or something crazy. Yeah. But what, what I mean to say is that if someone has a high demand and an athletic demand, they're like doing CrossFit for one hour every day, I would say, yeah, you maybe need some carbs, you know, do what you need to do to just feel good and get your workout done as high power as you can. But then for the rest of the day, if you want to stay lean and keep a six pack, well, then you don't need all the carbs for the rest of the day. Focus low carb. But during the exercise itself, maybe there's a reason to have carbs. I don't know enough about that, but it makes sense to me. I would be okay with that. Yeah. I, now, also, for me, hmm. I'm, a, I'm a middle aged man. I just want to stay lean and, and I don't work out that hard. I work out about 30 to 45 minutes a day and it's just pure body weight exercises, hmm. pure calisthenics. I do not spike carbs into my workout. I just don't need it. It's hmm. not a high enough intensity. I, I think that's, that's a good point. Uh, I see it also in that way. Like you have CrossFit, you have, we say weightlifting, for example. The guys who do professional Olympic weightlifting, it doesn't matter if you're, if you're broken at 30 or mm -hmm. at 35. Like your goal is to get to the Olympics and be the best. Any shortcut, any way, yep. 
if your mobility sucks in some part, but you don't have time to fix that before the competition, you're gonna try just try to get more muscle mass or whatever it might be, or work on your power. And um, you're just gonna live with, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna kind of be, um, I'm gonna uh, sacrifice my tenants so I can do this lift. Yep. And uh, we see this all the time, like the, the weightlifters, they're going broke. And we see long endurance athletes uh, burning out. Um, yeah. And it's a different thing. We're looking at the end of the spectrum where you're kind of, you're doing everything. Um, I mean, <laughs> if you look at cycling, they're, ba they're basically doing everything and everything that you shouldn't. Oh, yeah. Yeah. that isn't even allowed yeah. uh, to make those results happen um, but again for longevity it's a it's a different ball game and the same thing is when when it comes to you know you do cross, crossfit or you eat for for what are you eating and i'm thinking like <laughs> what for what are you training crossfit it's not we're not going going to the crossfit games where yeah. we we are we're okay it's cool to be able to do handstand and handstand walks and and to you know be able to squat twice your body weight or well and uh, and to even to make it practical it's cool yeah. to be able to easily get off the ground it's cool yeah. to be able to pick up your child and play with your child or yeah. you know so for me exercise is always a means to an end uh not always often it's a means to an end how can i be more physically capable in my life and then is is what i'm doing my physical activity my exercise is that helping me be more physically capable am i going to be a better husband and a better father and care for my home and care for my family that's a goal that's kind of main goal and then i want to look good yes sure yeah but that's not as important as feeling good and moving well yeah, I uh, I totally uh, agree there. Um, um, I I want to be respectful uh, of your time. Um, however, I have some small. I don't know if there are shorter questions, but uh, um, I'm thinking when you're when you're a scientist um, and a researcher. Uh, um, and the, this has been, uh, I, I follow Brett Weinstein uh, and mm -hmm. uh, some of these intellectuals and, yes. uh, and, um, and Sam Harris, and they talk yep. about uh, like how flawed the science is. And we look into nutritional science. Um, this is, um, uh, and we look at specifically like the sugar science, yeah. <laughs> the science of sugar. Um, where we have half of the studies out there are funded by sugar companies. Yeah, and they all show positive, good results for the sugar. <laughs> yeah. And so my, my, thought, uh, my question to you is like, so Ben, if you, if you had all the, the money in the world, uh, what, kind of like, what kind of studies would you uh, start doing? I, I, um, yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, that's a great question. I would, I would do more clinical studies like ones we've talked about, mixing macronutrients, even mixing different types of fat, different sources of, of carbohydrates, different sources of proteins, and, and have it be double blind uh, and 
and then just show the data for what they are. Uh, I appreciate all those names you mentioned, um, the Weinsteins and Sam Harris. Weinsteins in particular, because I, I feel like a kind of kinship with them, although I don't share all the same political, um, not all the same political thoughts, but I am very big on liberty, on freedom. Uh, and, and I'm also very much a religious person too, but I'm a very rational religious person. I have a very firm belief in God, in, in, in a higher power, but I also have a very great belief in, in human capability in human development. And so one of the challenges a scientist has is to be, um, is to not be married to an idea that a scientist is a seeker of truth. And one of the problems comes, one big problem comes when a scientist has an ulterior motive where they need the data to, to fit a narrative, to fit a story. They need to manipulate the truth to be one thing um, and rather than let the truth be what it is. Uh, often I will say that a scientist, it's cool, it's great to being a scientist because I get paid to be curious. But I shouldn't let my curiosity be overrun by an idea, by a, a dogma, a belief in what should be. <clears throat> That's one of the problems with science. And one of the problems too nowadays, um, at the risk of really going off topic here, as people start to lose a belief in a higher power, and, and I don't mean that in a condemning way, but I do get a little afraid when if they don't have faith in, in, in a higher power or, or a moral authority, then they put all their faith in science and that kind of becomes their God. And when science, and then scientists are like the priests of that new religion, and I think that that just creates too much power for the scientist, and then it, it potentially corrupts the scientist who who was once very innocent and just curious. Now they have an ego, and they 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 have their own kind of following, and that that's dangerous. I I, I worry a little bit when when I see that happening. I think it's. Um, uh, I, I can see w what you mean, and and it's definitely uh, the case when it comes to science. Is um, uh, but and this, but this is also why I like science. Science will continue to try to improve and change, yeah. if, it, if it's right, and it will always correct itself. And this is uh, one of the main one of the main reasons why I'm not religious. Is because that has not been the case in many mm -hmm. religions uh, over the time. Yeah. So uh, I know there are progressive uh, religious people and and so on, and I respect that just like I respect any other uh, person. Uh, but um, again, just hanging up, um, let's say, put put the, the the scientist on the on the altar is not gonna. Uh, it's not going to be the solution. However, um, I, I like the if if it's correct done correctly, the scientist will always have self doubt. Yeah, he, that's right. And he will always be open, just like I'm trying to be as open as I can with our training too, and with our methods and so on. 
is there a way to improve this? Like, yes. Is yes. this really the best way? What if we do like 20, 20 reps of this? Or maybe we change that to 10 reps. What yeah, happens? I totally agree. I totally agree. That is the mark of, of, a, of a humble person. And that's the difference, Richard. So the, what, what you're describing is, 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 to me, is humility, where the person never thinks, I know it all and I'm done. But that's what you see happening in science in certain realms, especially in nutritional science, that they think that the, the philosophy that they adopted 60 years ago, that low-fat diet is best and that saturated fat is the devil, it's done. The, there's no more science. We don't want to see it. That is, that is ego. That is when their pride or their ego or their conviction for one idea has eliminated all other options. That is the mark of a person who will not ever learn and become as great as they could be. And it is the mark of a very bad scientist. A yeah. scientist has to, at any moment, be prepared to dump every hypothesis that they thought. If they see the data start to challenge the idea, they need to be mentally nimble or flexible enough to realize that. But that requires some humility because that means I don't know everything. Yeah, uh, I think Sam Harris always talks about um, intellectual um, honesty. So mm -hmm. um, I, I, I yeah, he, he's a, he's a good example of someone who finds a moral framework in the absence in, in to him uh, of deity. So that that mm -hmm. there's a moral framework just sort of that people will naturally come to. Um, and I respect that. I, I, you know, I am religious, and so I see a different version of this. But even still, this is a person that I could live in a community with and be comfortable that we are going to have, we're going to be humble, honest, and have the interests of our fellow man at, 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 at the top. Yeah, I think this just, are you interested in having uh, meaningful conversations? And I think that's uh, very important treat and um, something especially now in this day and age of social media and everything is happening so fast uh, we we yeah, we just re <laughs> we just went through like the biggest shock in the crossfit community uh, right uh, um, and all due to this uh, social media one it, tweet yep yeah it has been a roller coaster right and I think this is just lack of com conversation, uh, and uh, we, yeah. I, I, and I, I see the, and I see like someone like Joko Willink mm -hmm. on on Joe Rogan. He's he's basically saying the same as like uh, what is happening in the U.S. right now with everything. It's just there's no no communication. Where everyone like if if you're the chief of police if you're the president or whatever you have to be there and communicate and go there on the ground not distance yourself and and people have forgotten one of the the fundamental rules of communication and that is and i'll say this in a kind of clever way but it is to seek first to understand and then to be understood so we just want to be heard we don't want to hear. We don't want to listen to someone else. And that is a, it's, it's a, a very sad way things are going. And social media makes that worse because you just want to push your own thoughts out there. You don't care to hear what someone else is telling you back. 
Yeah, I think Twitter is the worst there. I, I, yeah. I think I, I, I posted, I, I don't post anything more or less, but I, I've sometimes I've commented as like wanted to give someone like my, my honest, best, just pure willingness to help someone. And I get kicked in the mouth from someone else. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's just terrible. It really is. People, it is really just an opportunity for people to get upset. And that's kind of a new normal nowadays. People want to be angry. They want to be offended. They want to be upset. They don't want to try to understand each other because if they want, if they try to understand the other person, they would have to recognize that this is a real person. They have real thoughts and real feelings, and then they can't be so angry at them. People yeah. want to be angry, and that's a very dangerous, sad trend nowadays. And in the U.S., we're seeing that massively right now, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think this is going to be the last point, but we we have the corona we we touched a bit on the corona thing but um i think there's something in in this that you've been talking about with the insulin mm -hmm. and uh metabolic uh meta metabolic uh, disorder and uh, a virus like covid-19 because yeah. um uh, my thought is this so uh, yeah we see obese people are dying uh people with preconditions are dying um, more easily um but then there are these um cases where people uh say like hey this totally totally uh good looking person uh, got sick and died or is very very bad and as as i see it is like two reasons um or maybe maybe it's only one reason actually. So, and um, I got this a bit from watching again Robert Lustig, and he mm -hmm. talked about like this huge group of people that is not obese but have metabolic disorder uh, because they have uh, because of bad diet more, yeah. more or less. And we don't see this from the outside, but they're. Um, their uh, insulin and infl inflammation state in the body is super high, um, but th their body doesn't work that well with the, the storage, maybe. Yeah, yeah. So this study was, uh, there was a very compelling study published in a very good journal based on the data that we were seeing in the US from New York. And I strongly suspect we would see similar data across the world with, with, who is getting infected and it's a bad infection when they get COVID-19, that it's, it, they have to go to the hospital. 94%, so um, over more than nine in 10 people, 94% of everyone who gets infected and it's, it's a bad infection has a pre-existing condition. And the top three pre-existing conditions, obesity, hypertension, diabetes, that is the metabolic syndrome. That is insulin resistance, frankly. And, and in fact, 88% uh, of all people had two or more of these problems. And again, the top three by a, by a wide margin, obesity, hypertension, diabetes. So if someone is, someone's claiming, oh, this was a young, healthy person, <clears throat> I would say be skeptical of who is saying that and and did you actually confirm that this is a young healthy person is it that they're young healthy because you just see their face from a social media post um how are they we don't know anything else about the person 
um, just because they look healthy from the neck up, we don't, we don't really know. I, I, but I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm not saying it's impossible. It can happen. I'm, 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 uh, I have, I don't know many or very few examples, but one that I, uh, I, I thought about and that made me a bit more cautious uh, was uh, again Sam Harris. He talked about his friend who is, you know, this kind of fit guy, uh, very active, skiing. He went to Italy skiing, came back had COVID and was hospitalized. And I'm thinking um, like, yeah, someone uh, like Sam Harris sees this guy because this guy, he's active, he's not obese, uh, but again, as most intellectuals, uh, like even someone like Sam Harris that is very, knows a lot about a lot. Many of the intellectuals out there have very poor understanding when it comes to nutrition. Oh yes. So, so my 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 line of thought it was that okay, Sam Harris, you don't know so much about your friend's diet. Maybe yep. you don't know about uh, does he have like hypertension? Uh, he might look skinny. He might be active and everything, but he might have all these metabolic underlying disorders. Mm-hmm. that we can't see from the outside and this is kind of the, the dangerous the dangerous population because they're walking around thinking everything is fine and then suddenly they start to feel like an epiphany uh, feeling and then they drop dead oh yeah uh, and yeah. and most people in the u.s 88 percent of all u.s adults have some feature of the metabolic syndrome I mean, that 88% of U.S. adults, that is a shocking number. Yeah. Uh, it's going, you know, not as high in Western Europe, but it's, it's all going that direction. We're all getting there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so my, my caution would be to people that if you have, just because you're skinny, it, it doesn't mean necessarily that you're uh, cleared in that sense. However, if you are, and this is, comes back to the, the powers of CrossFit, is that if you, can, if you can deadlift twice your body weight, if you can squat 1.5 times your body weight, you can run 10K, uh, you, you sleep eight hours a night, and um, you have, uh, we say, a, in, at least a um, non-processed food diet, I think you're going to be pretty safe and uh, again and your body we say your your uh, body fat uh, percentage is is uh, at the 15 percent mark somewhere you're probably not gonna have uh any big risk um yeah yeah in fact one simple way um, in fact so for anyone listening let me let me leave them with some practical point with what you're saying if they don't have an access to a machine or or a gym to tell their body fat do two simple things get a measuring tape and measure around the biggest, the fattest part around their belly. And if that number, and then measure height, and if the belly circumference doubled, so belly circumference times two, if it's less than the number with height, then they're probably, probably okay. Not always, but probably. If, if belly circumference times two is higher number than height, that's bad news. So, Time to go to a CrossFit gym. <laughs> Time um, to go to Richard. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, I, I I wanted to ask you for uh, for a, 
a book tip. Um, mm -hmm. um, I, I heard you, uh, you said, uh, seek to understand and, uh, and then to be yes. understood. Uh, I, Steve Covey. Yes, uh, yes, yes. So mind. he was a professor at my university. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, BYU. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so that that is probably uh, Seven Habits is probably one of the books that has uh, opened up my eyes a lot to understanding, trying to understand people better. Yes, yeah, same, same. In fact, yeah. my dad, my dad had taken a class from Stephen Covey when he was a student here at this university years ago, and so we were raised with these ideas. And Richard, my dad almost by himself because my mom died when we were all quite young my dad raised 13 children <laughs> and i will say every child is has a job they have a family they um, it, it's uh, and i i do think not not completely but those principles in seven habits of highly effective people if if someone hasn't read that go read that book and then, Richard, when they're done with that book, sometime next year, sometime next year, when, once it's translated into German, and we don't have a release date yet, but yeah. get my book, Why We Get Sick. It'll be released in Germany, um, in German, sometime hopefully early next year. And it just is all about insulin resistance, how you get it, um, what are all the diseases that come from it, and then what to do about it, which is what we've been talking a lot about now. Yeah, um, I'm I'm very uh, keen on getting my hands on the book. Uh, it's uh, it's on pre-order right now and, and on Amazon, right? Yeah, that's right. Version. Yeah. Yep. So um, I, I'm thinking of uh, trying to uh, digest that book, and I'll try to see if I can uh, do a German uh, recap of it uh, awesome. pretty soon because I think it's uh, it's a lot of again. I think we need to have uh, have a bit louder voice when it comes to this. Uh, I know a lot of MDs simply are not enough educated on this topic, right. and um, they are mostly the people that are meeting these people with these disorders. So uh, just to give them this nudge, like check, check, like if we can have this whispering yep. thing in their air, like check your insulin. Yep, yep, it's uh, a little a little voice. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that might be very helpful. Um, all right. Um, uh, thank you, Ben, to, um, for uh, participating in the show. Um, and sorry for the loud background music. Our, our, no, it, uh, adds a certain, it adds a certain mood to the conversation, <laughs> Richard. It's wonderful. I had a great time. Thanks for the invite. Thanks for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and uh, I look forward to um, speaking to you somewhere in the future again and uh, maybe having you uh, either uh, back, back on a podcast or if you are coming to uh, Germany for, you know, uh, book tours or so. We are also looking at uh, actually having a bigger conference. We were looking at doing a bigger conference now this, uh, this fall with, uh, with uh, for the fitness community in Europe. Mm -hmm, but... Mm -hmm um where we had very targeted um knowledge about uh you know uh, yeah having a small micro gyms but also uh, coaching habits and all that stuff so uh maybe that would be a, a interesting thing to to touch on in, in the future too so oh, i'd love it i'd love yeah. it yep please keep yeah. me in mind thanks again for the invitation i had a great time 
Thank you, Ben, and uh, have a great day. Uh, speak to you soon again. <laughs> yep, yep. Bye-bye. Bye, man.